week we'll talk about building data science practice. And we have a special guest today, Andrei. Andrei is a director of engineering at Honeywell, where he leads the advanced technology group within the safety and sensing business. He is working on developing technologies and solutions based on signal processing, perception, computer vision, AI, machine learning for healthcare, industrial, logistical, market verticals. So that's uh, you're doing quite a lot of work, and you've been with uh, Honeywell for five years, right? And Andre also lives his wife and son in Dallas, Texas. So it's a pleasure to have you here, Andre. Thanks, Alexei. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope we will have a, a great session here. Yeah, we definitely will. Before we go into our main topic of building data science practice, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Sure. So like you say, I'm director of engineering at Honeywell. I lead and support what's called the Advanced Technology Group, which is sort of like a composition of several teams. We are working on novel technologies that we later introduce into our product line. So we work with a lot of signal processing, like you said, perception, vision. And uh, across the last uh, five years, I worked to support multiple organizations. I came to lead our AI adoption initiative and uh, later transferred to build our robotics group where I led our perception team for a year. So it's been a good journey of uh, working through you know multiple advanced teams and building maturity and building practice into those teams. In terms of my career, you know I've, I've been coding since I remember myself probably seven years old. I've been always kind of engineered my heart, but my formal background is actually not the computer science. My formal background is organizational development management in the context of IT and technology organizations. I have scholarship and uh, multiple degrees in organization development and, and management. Overall, my, I started as a software engineer and I saved my paycheck on the side to fund a few businesses, some of them that I successfully failed and some of them were later acquired. And during one of those businesses, so I was there as a technical co-founder, that business was around, we were actually scanning and digitizing retailer catalogs for coupons. It was back in Europe, and we were essentially scanning those coupon printed paper catalogs, and we were extracting the information from those catalogs, and we were offering that on our website. And that required a lot of, first of all, image image analysis and also uh, sort of the recommendation models. And this is where I, you know, that was 2013, 14, this is where I fall, fell in love with data science. And starting then, this is where I really started my journey with data science, uh, with conventional data science, data analytics, and then later into you know, neural networks, of course. And it was interesting because, you know, after I had my own sort of set of businesses, I went to another extreme. I went to Honeywell and Honeywell in Europe and Middle East, it might not be as well known in US. Honeywell is a Fortune 100 company with a 100 year old history and heritage being known for mostly before it was well known mostly for industrial hardware industrial equipment and um, some of you might ask what brought you from doing your own startups into a multinational conglomerate with hundred thousand people but i joined Hannibal five years ago when uh, the company got its new ceo who put a company on the trajectory of a digital transformation it's really what it meant moving company from being hardware oriented into more 
software industrial oriented, essentially changing our model from selling one-time hardware to selling services and subscription that is enabled by that hardware. And that meant really sensorizing, connecting all of that equipment, pushing data into the cloud, and doing a lot of analytics, doing a lot of signal processing, doing a lot of intelligence in the cloud that you can actually multiply the value of those solutions. And that really sold me on that. I realized that would be a lot of scope of, of, of doing analytics, doing AI, and uh, we could be really at the beginning of it. And so that really sold me on, on my role. And uh, everything that we work here is, is really high impact. You are in your everyday job impacting millions of, of customers. And so I work with, over my last five years, I worked, you know, with logistics, warehouse, robotics. I worked with smart cameras or some cold technologies for sensing. And uh, most of what we do is vision and perception. But uh, we also work into other modalities like natural language and, and voice and, and predictive analytics overall. So I'm just wondering what kind of industrial equipment do you work with? Is it like conveyor? belts or things like that yeah this is one of the product lines and Hannibal is a really distributed organization you can think of it's actually a russian doll where you have like things like you have five big business groups at the top airspace smart connection airspace. buildings performance materials <laughs> safety products our own cloud platform so it's really it's, it's five big companies within the umbrella of one company and then each of those companies, they, they split into their own businesses and, and units. And it's a, it's a very complex structure of businesses and portfolios that you, that you need to navigate. That's a very interesting name. I would assume if that uh, they do like cereals, breakfast, because the name is, uh, you know, tasty. Animal. No. <laughs> but yeah, it's quite the opposite. That was the first thing that I said. <laughs> but in the US, a company known, well known for, well, like almost every building has some sort of animal product. Uh, every commercial <laughs> building. And every, I, I bought a house last year. I found a gas meter from Honeywell and the Honeywell thermostat. So when I try to sell Honeywell to uh, the engineers and managers that I hire, I usually talk about that, which is true that uh, essentially, you know, anywhere you go in a building, the airplane, car, even space shuttles, you would find something, something from Honeywell. And you developed some things for these gas meters, for things on airplanes, or, or only like, I guess, for these assembly lines, right? You're working on improving that? So I, I work in a business group, which is called uh, Safety and Productivity Solutions. And there are things like, again, smart cameras, smart sensors, robotics for warehouses. You go to Starbucks or you go to Ikea, you would see a, the barcode scanner at the post terminal would be from Honeywell. So it's really, you know, in your daily, you, you wouldn't notice it, but really you touch Honeywell product on, on a daily basis. Yeah, quite interesting. Okay, I know nothing about this company up until now. That's, uh, you're doing quite a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, so the topic today is building data science practice. But I was wondering, what does it actually mean, data science practice? Is it a data science team or there is more to that? When I think about practice, it's, I think about sort of like a widespread adoption of best data science and machine learning engineering practices across the organization. And it might not seem something special in the context of 
small organizations where you have you know just one product team but when you think about multi-product team organizations organizations that are distributed it's not a straightforward thing to make data science work efficiently and uh, really it's about breaking organizational barriers not allowing for silos you know if you want really to your data science strategy run efficiently especially in the very beginning you cannot allow for teams uh, using multiple frameworks or using multiple tools or using multiple clouds and really it's that makes things in, inefficient and so this is what i think when, when i talk about the data science practices all it's, it's aligning everybody on the same page so teams work not only efficiently within the team context but also within the organizational context and um, yeah so it's it's just uh, maturing up the organization and to shift from ad hoc like pilot where you know teams constantly are building pilots 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 but they don't push those pilots into production and that's how to shift from the sort of constant pilot stage to mature stage when you ship and, and you productize mm -hmm. i'm wondering in your particular case at honeywell so honeywell to me strikes me as a more like traditional company where it comes second ai comes second while there are companies like internet companies where it's much much easier right to get data and start using machine learning like for you i guess that was an extra layer of challenges right exactly exactly and that was when i was started five years ago and the company took a turn of saying you're no longer going to be focused just on the hardware and with hardware you can think of you know you build the hardware let's say a gas meter you sell it one time and then you maybe support it, you maintain it. There is a software component. But this is like sort of like six, five years ago, the company turned and said, we're going to be doing a lot more software now. And uh, essentially, we're, this is the complexity of integrating of data workflows and algorithms that are based on data come in place. And so really, it was such an honor of being a part of putting the company on, on a trajectory of change. And I, I won't say that First of all, I won't say that everything went perfectly well. We learn from our mistakes, but it's also always, it's a very difficult thing to make a shift like that in a company with a 100 year old history and, and 100,000 people that humanity separate. And this is where you make sure that, you know, you learn there's so much complexity here that you learn really fast. And I'm really curious now that you mentioned this is not what I was going to ask initially, but now that you mentioned that a gas meter, you just sell it and support it. Right. And there is no way you can include software. So can you actually include software into a gas meter? Right. Yeah, and you have, of course, like a long tail. You have products that are more conventional and uh, less intelligent, but you just start building intelligence into them. Well, a better example would be for example, we started working on uh, some advanced sensors for the quality of the air, for example. And before I worked on this problem, I really, you know, I didn't think that that was such a such a problem. Well, you're breathing air, right? I mean, how could that be dangerous? But then when we started actually looking under the microscope, what are the different things that, that we are breathing in, like mold uh, and, uh, and pollen and, and pet dander and dust, you get really scared, you know, what you're really breathing in. Or things like when you buy a house and you you realize that you know I have a cat allergy, 
And I realized when, when I moved in that there was a cat uh, living here and we had to do a deep cleaning here. And so we are, for example, uh, building a sensor that with the push of a button can tell you all the micro allergens that are in the air. And so what you're actually getting from making those things connected is, first of all, you now can process the data in the cloud and you can run massive, massive signal processing and the analysis on the data that you process. And you're able not only run the workflows in the cloud, but you can actually you know, get this data and fine tune your model, of course. That allows you to, to really build in uh, you know, the algorithms that you wouldn't be able to. Otherwise, you would need a whole computer with an industrial GPU on it, and that this device would, would cost like several thousand dollars and things like that. Uh, you cannot put it physically in a gas meter, right? Yep, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so coming back to data science practice. So you mentioned that a data science practice is a set of data science and machine learning practices. How do you spread these practices? Right? And then right. you mentioned like not having silos, having the same tools and processes in different teams. Right. And sounds like a very good uh, thing to have. And I'm wondering, I'm joining a company as the first data scientist, I don't know, data science manager, or maybe director, or just as a data scientist, and we want to build it. So how do we build these data science practices and what are the steps to get there? Right. So here, of course, <laughs> yeah, I might say it depends, but it really depends on multiple factors. I sort of have like a mental model of, of going from low maturity to high maturity, or like I say, you know, you crawl, you walk, and then you run. A lot depends on the size of the organization, of course. A lot depends on what would be the focus. So where are you going to deliver the value? And or in other words, when you're interviewing with a company, or you're working in a company, it's good to reflect on who in the organizational hierarchy the data science team is reporting into. Actually, you know, I, I never asked myself when when think questions like this when I was just an, an individual contributor, but it's it's hugely important, and it's important because depending on you know to which executive uh, the the data function rolls into, this data group could actually do uh, very different things. And the example would be so if the data function rolls into the CTO. Or the, the chief technical officer, that most probably mean that the data group will be focused on enhancing the product capabilities, right? So CTO is responsible for building an offering or building a product, right? So if you are reporting to CTO, that means that your function goals would be to enhance the capability of the actual product that you work on. But this is not the only thing, because you could also, for example, report into CIO, chief uh, information officer. And in this case, very likely, you would be working a lot on the internal optimization workflows, like optimization of efficiencies of your um, internal ecosystem instead of working on the product. Or the data team could report into chief marketing officer. And then it would mean that it's mostly analytics function around marketing and sales and customer interaction. And so that's an interesting question to reflect on, because really whoever you report into, that means the goals of that particular executive you will be helping to, to achieve. 
And so it's probably the step zero to really reflect on this and say, okay, where the data can provide the, the biggest value. And it does not necessarily need to be either or. There are organizations that report into the CEO, or, and then in this case, it would really mean if you report into CEO, most likely it would mean that you will work across all of those functions. So the data will have their own place, both in, in product engineering, both in internal optimization, both with sales and marketing and customer interaction. But this is a very important question to reflect because that would really define what is the profile of the talent that you will, will be working with? What are the profile of algorithms that will, you will be working with? The example is, so we work on, on product and the modality of the algorithms that we work is, is mostly signal processing and computer vision. This is because we work a lot with sensing aspect of our work. But then we also have a team in Honeywell that works on optimization of internal processes, like uh, demand prediction, for example. And that team doesn't do any computer vision. That team only uh, works with essentially fairly conventional predictive analytics algorithm. There is nothing wrong about it, but it's just a different type of algorithms that you will be working on. And so it's, it's good to actually understand, you know, because that question, that answer would align you, what kind of talent, what kind of algorithms, what kind of technology and the infrastructure that you will have to build in order to, to fulfill those goals. I hope it makes sense. Yeah, it does. I'm just wondering, so the company where I work, it's called Toilix, we're doing like right. its online marketplace. When I joined the company, the data function, or I don't know how to call it, like uh, my manager was reporting to a CPO, chief product officer. In this right. case, I think it's a similar idea like reporting to a CTO. So right. improving the product, right? But here in this case, product has its own vertical or how to call it. Mm -hmm. And I guess in case if you report directly to CEO, it makes you a chief data officer in this case. Some organization call it formally chief data officer. It could be still VP of data or yes, right? But reporting to CEO mean that we, you would that you would not only have a focus on engineer or you would not only have a focus on on internal IT and things like that. So your function will go much, much broader. And it's it's really about who is going to be your executive sponsor. Your executive sponsor is going to lead and assign particular goals and particular initiatives um, for you. So it's it's hugely important. But um, as we go through this, um, you ask about sort of like the steps, right? But my mental model is that you you go through low maturity, a medium maturity, and then high maturity. And the, the low maturity would mean that you come into the team and you start building a team that, and it depends on on the you know who drives that. There are situations when uh, the executives drive that and they would hire uh, senior roles and sort of like the initiative of, of developing this practice would come from the executive level. But many times the initiative of building uh, data into products or, or internal capabilities would come from, from engineers themselves, right? And I've been, I've been there uh, myself. When I came to Honeywell, uh, we, we had a sort of similar situation. Some of the initiatives that we were building really came from, from the software engineers who uh, at some point of time got inspired by data and they started working with uh, machine learning algorithms or, or other conventional um, data algorithms. Or another approach would be engineering managers would think of additional capabilities and they would start hiring uh, data scientists and thinking that you can just hire a data scientist 
plug them into the team and then overnight magic will happen and overnight the, the products will get some magic intelligence uh, artificial intelligence type type, type of uh, functionality a lot of profit right? yes yes but it doesn't happen this way and data science or, or artificial intelligence it's it's a very multi or cross functional type of uh, stacks and this is one of the misconceptions where you can just hire a phd and overnight you'll get the, get the benefit and uh, i think many organizations underestimate the complexity of it because it really impacts the talent that you have and there is more than just data scientists right and we can talk about this there are, there are more research scientists there are machine learning engineers there are data engineers there are impact into the infrastructure and there is impact into how you run processes there is an impact in the whole mindset shift where going from a sort of pre-planned waterfall type of approach to engineering into into more iterative engineering and so there are there are those things that you you don't really uh, many people sometimes from the conventional software background they don't know about and this is why there is just high expectation and this is why things take so much long time than than originally assumed I'm just curious in your opinion what happens more often that it comes from the engineers from the Mm, no bottom up approach or more like executive mm -hmm. decides they listen to some consultants from McKinsey and decide to right. build this practice what does happen more often being data driven i don't have the, those stats <laughs> anecdotally right i think it's the combination of that you know i i see i see both of those situations the same way like you're talking about both mckinsey consultants but ceos and ctos you know we are not talking about something that came just just yesterday right the data science got popularized i think the peak was roughly around five four years ago when it was really at the peak right now everybody knows about it but also i see a lot of software engineers with conventional backgrounds because ai becomes such a hot topic and there is so much of democratization you know the tools that we have right now when you can like the example with you know stable diffusion when you can just download a google collab notebook uh, run a few cells and you would have the whole thing in front of you and i think many people just really feel very empowered by that and will get excited and overexcited sometimes about it and this is something i i really often you know try to watch out for both for myself and for my team because if you get overexcited about something you sometimes get really biased and instead of really working through what's important for the customer you start working on something just because you want to try this technology and ai becomes not a solution for some customer problem but it becomes a shiny things that that nobody knows so when you think about you know integrating data science workflow or building up data science capabilities you really need to start from how can i really improve my customer experience instead of hey i have this shiny technology hey let's find where we can plug this technology into and i think so many people just get super biased about this yeah i've been there done that <laughs> uh, speaking of stable diffusion so this is indeed super cool so uh, the other day i played with this and generated a data set with dragons and dinosaurs So to me, they always looked the same and I thought, okay, maybe we can just get some data with dinosaurs and dragons. And then the pictures are creepy still, but sometimes they're really good. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, coming back to this building the practice. So let's say we join a company and we figure out what that we report to, which executive we report to, like the options, um, as you mentioned, uh, CTO, CMO, CIO, CEO. All of them. All of them. All of them, right. <laughs> so what happens next? Like, what do we do next? So we figure out that, let's say it's a CTO. Well, what's next? Yeah, so usually... You get to really understand, and, and the way it usually works is that the right thing, of course, is understand what kind of problems we want to solve with data or what kind of capabilities we want to build with that. It doesn't always work like this. As I said, there are some grassroots efforts uh, bottom up when uh, engineers start uh, coming up with new ideas right there and start building some proof of concepts. And, and usually the first stage is what I, I call crawl stage, right? Before you walk, you, you, you got to crawl. This is where teams start to kind of build those proof of concepts. And usually with a company that still has not built a mature data practice, this is a big, really big challenge is to move some of those proof of concepts in, into production. Because again, the expectation is, hey, let's just hire a PhD data scientist. They will just build a model, bum, bum, bum. There we go. We'll have this new magic functionality. But again, it, it doesn't work like this. Project, but this is what exactly the situation when I came to Honeywell five years ago, when we had some data scientists here and there, they were hired by conventional software engineering managers who didn't know anything about the data. And so the expectation was that we're just going to hire them, plug them, and they will start working on them. But it's, it's more than that. And first of all, it's, it's really about the fact that it's very easy to build flashy uh, proof-of-concept demos, but it's very difficult to get them into the production because, as you know, well, first of all, uh, building a model is on a small data set for the flashy demo, you can probably get some, some data points that you can build the model. But really to make it a robust model, you gotta have a different level of uh, volume of your data set. And that's always a problem. Where are we, we, we gonna get, get the data? And unfortunately, the companies that are not as mature, they don't prioritize build, uh, collecting data early enough, which has to be really prioritized right there when you actually build a project passport, right? At the step zero, when you're thinking about the project, when you, or you're thinking about the feature or function that you're going to integrate into the existing project, you got to start thinking, you know, where are we going to get the data on top of which we are going to build our model? And companies don't prioritize that. So to build a, you know, initial model, it takes some time, but it takes 10x more time too. And then many other reasons. Things like the engineering component of building data products is different from conventional software engineering. Just by building a model, you cannot enable the feature, right? You need to integrate this model. You need to deploy this model. You need to watch and uh, operationalize this model. You need to be able to have the closed loop of retraining this model based on the, the new data that is coming in. And so usually... The this is not how uh, conventional software engineering work. So you really need to change the processes, uh, change the infrastructure. And so that takes time. And so this is why often you, you have hard time really to, to deploy those demos. And I've been, I've, I've been myself wrong many times on this. And this is exactly how I started myself. 
but you reflect on on all of those issues and you you start fixing them by one by one. And so in this crawl stage, in the beginning stage, I'm not a big fan of having many different projects and seeing what actually works out because you have multiple teams. And when you have multiple teams and multiple scientists and engineers, and it's more difficult to manage them, my approach is having a fewer project as possible on which you can build the whole end-to-end process. And so in, in the scroll stage, uh, the idea is usually just get one project out of the door end-to-end. One project that would become sort of like a poster child, an example for the whole cycle of collecting data, running experiments, identifying which model is the best, changing the infrastructure, and having the roles of people who would work on the infrastructure to be able to productize those models, monitor those models, retrain those models, and essentially having a whole end-to-end cycle. And this is where I would say, you know, put the major focus on having at least one project that is that is successful instead of having 10 projects that fail. Because if you have 10 projects that fail, what actually also what happens is that data science gets a bad reputation and people get actually a lot more uh, negative about building data-enabled products. So I would here put most of my eggs in one basket and and running end-to-end. And this is where you switch into the next phase of data maturity, and you build a centralized practice. That means you want to now get all the efforts and all the uh, scientists in one organization and really start building when working on uh, further projects. You mean like a team, right? organization right and it, in in early stages it's good to to collect all of them in one team or all in one organization and centralize them and what i mean by that is that you need to build a set of best practices and you need within one team what makes it easier that if this the, all of those people under one team it's easier to popularize those best practices and integrate and deploy those best practices and what i mean by best practices it starts with talent acquisitions and hiring, of understanding which are, what are the actual roles, what are the difference between research scientists, machine learning engineer, data engineer, data quality engineer, and, and other professions, and really understanding what the difference between those, having actually uh, job descriptions for those, because when you start actually HR, you come to HR and they don't know who do we need to hire. And when you hire wrong people, everything is wrong after that. It starts from uh, aligning on a particular set of infrastructure and tools, right? So which cloud are we going to be using? Are we going to be using cloud? Are we going to be using on-prem? Are we going to be using our own deployments? What kind of tools we are going to be using? Are we going to write our own experiment tracking system? Or we're going to be using other tools on the markets from weights and biases, Neptune, Comet, and, and, and so on and so forth how we're going to be productizing and deploying those models and things like that. So you, when you are within one team, it's, it's a lot easier to and faster to build those best practices and really align the team on those best practices. But the trick is the centralized approach is actually, it's how I think, and I could be, it's, it's really subjective. It's not the best way of, of managing uh, data organizations, but the step that you have to go through on the way to to higher maturity. So in a way you start with ad hoc approach where you build one major proof of concept 
You go to a centralized model where you get the team together and you build set of practices by uh, working on, on more projects. But this is not the most efficient way of, of running data teams in most cases, just because when you have a centralized team and let's say a product manager comes to you and say, hey, we need to build this, let's say a recommendation engine for our website. Can you give us a data scientist? And so you have a list of projects that you work on as a centralized team. And then you, you need to market your team internally. So product managers or engineering managers come to you and you act sort of like a resource pool. But then it doesn't work most efficient because there is a queue, essentially. You need to prioritize those projects. And how do you prioritize those projects, right? Uh, but also you get a, a data scientist or a machine learning engineer or data engineer that they today they work on one project and tomorrow they work on a different project. And so they don't really work with uh, consistently with one team. They not necessarily know how people or how those teams operate and act, right? They don't establish trust and respect with those teams. And what I also found out through a lot of mistakes and, and, and hard experiences that when you have a centralized team, your scientists, their performance is treated by their own scope. It's going to get clear now. But if you actually push that scientist and actually write there into the team and having that scientist actually report into that team and be formally a part of that team, the performance of that scientist is going to be treated more like on based on the performance of the whole project. Right? So we on one side, you have a centralized team and performance of the scientists is, is rated on the performance of their work. But if they work for a particular team and report for a particular engineering manager, for example, their performance is more going to be treated as a performance of overall project, which you actually want your engineers and scientists only to say, hey, this is my type of work. This is only what I'm responsible for. I don't care about anything else. You actually want them to be drivers and the fans of the project itself and, and think like the project success fully relies on them. And so this is where the third model comes in. That's a lot of information. And I want to try to summarize everything right. you said before we move to the, right. what you call the RAM base. Decentralized. Right? Yep. Decentralized. Yeah. So first we need to figure out who is our executive sponsor right? and then that it also helps us to understand which problems to solve with data what kind of things we work on and then we start with a proof of concept not many proof of concepts it's better to select a single one as few as possible as few as possible let's say a single one but we need to make sure that it is successful at, at the end right so we don't want to fail because if we fail then data science gets bad reputation and then we might lose trust of our executive sponsor who was rooting right. for us right so we don't want right. to do right. that so because the executive sponsor really believed in us so we need to try to meet the expectations so we do this poc and this poc you mentioned that it often comes from engineers who want to do something cool and then they pitch it to i don't know the managers and then this thing starts and then eventually we have a POC and then it goes to the next phase. A centralized approach. Yep. Yeah. We don't have any data, right? We need to build all these pipelines and then we need to productionize the model. And we do this centrally. 
because we want to make sure that we build this set of practices that you've mentioned. Right. And then I think it's important to understand what kind of roles we need, what kind of tools we want to use, right? And all these things that uh, you just talked about. But then decentralized approach creates problems, right? Because you act as a resource pool, pool and then sometimes there are not enough resources in the pool. So then we need to, and the, all these other problems you mentioned that I don't remember, but like there were a, a big list, right? Which brings us to the next phase, the embedded teams, right? Right. Or decentralized teams. Decentralized teams. Where a data scientist or data person sits in the team, right? And then this is where I stopped you. Right. The, the importance is who they report into. Mm -hmm. They could still work on those projects, but the question is, who do they report to? Do they report into, let's say, the organization of chief data officer, who is kind of a central, or they report to the engineering manager of that particular product? And it's a big difference because your manager is the one who rates your performance. And so in this case, it's better that uh, usually, and you know, that you move from a centralized model by taking all those people who used to be in your centralized model in your own team. And then you say, you're now going to report to this engineering manager and you're going to be working for that product or that function. And uh, it's not that it might sound like something difficult or heartbreaking, right? You used to report to one manager and now you report to a different manager. But really, in my experience, many times it, it actually came very naturally. Because as, as people work with different teams, they create some affinity and some experience towards particular problems or particular teams or particular business domains. And it's when you transition from the centralized to decentralized, it's actually much easier approach because many times people will say, yes, I want to work for that product right now. And so that doesn't create as many frictions. And this is what we went through. We, we used to have one centralized team. And then we said, this you, for example, you used to work on this particular set of problems for this particular business, for this particular product line. You are now going to report to that engineering manager and you're going to be working with them. And you essentially spread your team across and you have them work on, on a particular project and that helps them. What do you do? Do you just kick back and don't do anything? Oh, no, 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 no. This is why I say when decentralized models, I've never seen fully decentralized models work ideally, and usually what I call semi-decentralized. So you still have to leave some space. You still need to have one central function that will be responsible for some of the functions. Because like, for example, the hiring or the, the infrastructure, some of those things have to be still central. But the engineering, for example, engineering teams and product engineering teams, it's better than they work with their engineering man managers and their product teams. And so there is still some level of, uh, sometimes this, this model is called hub and spoke, meaning that there is one hub. You still have a chief data officer that's responsible for some of the high level functions and standards. Then you have different team across the organizations that work almost autonomously. You still build bridges between them. You still kind of work with them to understand what kind of problems they have, what kind of roadmaps they work on. But what's really important, I think that you have to have the right set of steps and you have to go first to centralized and then decentralized. And the reason for that, when you are centralized, you need to build that set of practices and then those people take those practices to their own teams. 
and they don't start from zero with their product teams. And this is hugely important. Mm -hmm. And your your role, I guess, is still trying to make sure that they have this common set of practices. Now they are spread and that they might come yep. up with their own thing, yeah. which is fine, right? But you don't want to, like, you still want to maintain the same set of tools, the same set of practices. Yeah, there are still some things. And it's not always the same. Like, it doesn't mean that everybody needs to have to use PyTorch. Mm -hmm. Some will use PyTorch and some of them will use Tensor. But I'll give you a good example. Vendor relationships, right? When you work with tools and procurement of tools, central function is much more efficient identifying which tools we want to procure for those teams to use rather than having those teams actually decide what tools they do. Because you don't want to have, let's say, like different vendors for the same things in different groups. Uh, again, it's not that black and white, but usually this is this is how it, use, it works more efficiently. So you, you as a central function, knowing what kind of problems your teams are dealing, you can say, hey, how about we're, we're using, you know, I don't know, this particular experiment tracking or MLOps platform, because this is the way you can actually get the best deal. And then you can help those teams consume those products. So this is one of the examples that, that work very well. Mm -hmm. Or like with data annotation or image annotation, we, we do a lot of image annotation. What vendor are we going to be using for data annotation, right? Things like that. So there are still some functions in the central org that is more efficient to be sold. Mm -hmm. We have quite a bunch of questions and not so much time. So probably we should go to the questions and try to answer them. And the Please. first question was, you mentioned that software engineers pivot into data science. How do they actually convince their manager to do this? So it's a good question. If you are a software engineer and you want to pivot into data science, I have actually a long post on LinkedIn about this, but my advice is always about this is it would be very hard for you to, to get hired as a data scientist from scratch if your previous position is a software engineer. So my advice to you is try to convert into the data scientist at the same company you're currently working in. So you get actually formally data scientist title and you work through and get some experience in it, get a few years of experience, and then you can either stay in this company or switch and get hired into another company with a formal role of, of data scientist. Now, what you get can get transferred is all about finding right problems to solve and really solving that. And if uh, you can uh, come and offer, let's say you're building, I don't know, a product recommendation algorithm, you know, your team doesn't have an experience with it. And you can really, in your uh, free time, dive into the subject, gather the data, build a prototype, and really show to your team that you can build a mature model. It's not going to be easy, but it will take some time. It's not that the your engineer manager, just because you're a software engineer, they will say no. But sometimes they will say, but it's it's about being actually uh, persistent in offering yourself as a problem solver for data heavy problems and within your organizations, moving to teams that have more data. So think about from the perspective, where do I have the data? And what are the problems that I can solve with that data? And the teams that have abundance of data usually have problems that you can solve with, with this data. That doesn't usually happen at the POC stage, the centralized stage or decentralized stage, or does it even matter? 
Yeah, the more mature the organization is, the the harder it would be to really switch. But it's not that you won't be able to switch. So we I have a few examples on people who were software engineers, actually just were persistent in helping solve hard problems using data. And then at some point of time, they you know you come to your manager and say, hey, I've been essentially a data scientist for the last two years. Can we work with you for me to formally change the title? We had use cases like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually also had use cases like that at, in the company where I work. A person was a data engineer, and then he mm-hmm. said, okay, look, I'm actually doing ML engineering for the last two years. Can we make the switch formally? Exactly. Then, and I guess at the POC stage, it's the simplest, right? So just, okay, there's this cool thing, let, let us try. And then this thing works, and uh, all of a sudden, one year later, you're just doing this thing. Right. But but if you're a software engineer, you will pro most likely underestimate the complexity of it. Yeah. You course, might build, again, a model that works for the demo, but really integrating mm-hmm. it in, in a robust way. There is a long way from a demo to a robust model. Mm-hmm. And you will probably underestimate that. So it, it's, it's not weeks and it's not months. Um, yes. Yeah, on that level. Another question we have is, what is your favorite data science practice so far? Like, I guess we talked about all these uh, best practices. Like, what do you think is the most important one? I mean, I think what's most impactful and where many people are making mistakes is really that if you hire a PhD scientist, you should not rely on what they make to productize. Sure, you should not rely that the code that they write in a Jupyter notebook could be transferred into production. For this, you will need another stage of machine learning engineer and or applied data scientists who would then recrunch all of that code and put it into production. And I think uh, many organizations, many people or many managers with, with a conventional background, they don't understand that. These are the two extremes of developing a model and having that model run in production. And you have to put in place other roles to ensure that you can make this code robust to productize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably not like the best practice, but more like realization and a way to set expectations that, look, if we hire this person who has a PhD in uh, machine learning, it doesn't mean that we automatically get rich tomorrow, right? Right. So managing these expectations yeah. and then saying that, okay, we actually need a, a team of engineers to make it work. That would be your answer, right? Yeah. That essentially comes down to having a clear roles that there is a research scientist and distinguishing research scientist from machine learning engineer. I can tell mm-hmm. you one example. I know we're running out of time, but I used to work with research scientists. And every time I come with a problem to them, they say, uh, let me go and read white papers. And uh, you know, many times you don't need to read white papers. There is this solution up front for you that you can do. But I, I, I see a heavy reliance on, hey, let me, let me go and, and I'm going to go you know, for two weeks and I'm going to read white papers before I'll, I'll give you a, a solution. And this is what I clearly is like the research scientist mindset that does not work well when you productize anything. <laughs> it's great to have them, but it's you have to plug additional roles in order to transition to the production. Well, before we finish today, maybe you wanted to mention something but didn't have a chance. 
Oh, well, we talked about so much already. I hope it, uh, it resonated. And I know we had um, a lot of scientists and engineers in the audience. Again, my advice would be, you know, if you want to grow, you need to think from the perspective of the higher you go in your seniority, the more impact you have across the stack, across the team, across the, the business, across the organization. And so my advice is spend some little amount of time of learning of what actually happens just beyond of your scope of your role. That will propel you faster to the next level. And again, people are promoted not because they will learn the skills they will require at the next level. They are promoted because they already exercise the skills that need to be at the next level. So this is why be more forth looking into, you know, what are other teams or roles are doing and be more open about how do I make a broader scope uh, type of impact beyond what just I'm currently working on. And thanks for this chat. I hope that was interesting. Yeah. Am I right that the best way to reach out to you is LinkedIn? LinkedIn would be the best. Yeah, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn, so please do connect. Okay. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for sharing all your expertise, experience with us. And also, thank you everyone for joining us, for asking questions, for being active. I see that there is a long discussion in live chat. So yeah, thanks for joining us today and everyone have a great weekend. Thanks, Tim. Be great. Bye.